the Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast. We'll help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey in helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment. Welcome everyone to the Spiritual Brew Pub. I'm your host, Michael Camp, and today we have another amazing guest with us, Dr. Kim O'Reilly. Kim is an author, a professor of uh, cultural and diversity studies, uh, most recently at the University of Nevada. Uh, she trains teachers and she's also an expert in conflict resolution. She wrote the book, We Love You, But You're Going to Hell. Kim, Welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's, it's good to be here. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm really glad that you could you could join me today. Um, I love your title of the book. It really highlights the problems with much of conservative theology that creates what you call a double-edged sword, uh, love and hell together, and also what I call a two-faced God, and we'll, we'll get into that later in our conversation. Your subtitle is Christians and Homosexuality, Agree, Disagree, Take a Look. And finally, I really like the graphic on the cover. I understand you designed the graphic and tell us about that. Well, what I was looking for was that combination of love uh, and condemnation, which does happen for, for homosexuals in the church. So we love you, but you're going to hell. So the heart, looking for the image of a, of a fiery heart that represents hell, but it's shaped as a heart and it has an open end to it at the bottom. Um, and then also there is, a, a it could be a dove or an angel, however oh. anyone does, does discern see. that. Um, and, and it's a part of the whole image and it's all connected without having any um, closed circle to it that is, that is open. And, yeah. so, and it's to draw attention to the fieriness, but also the heart, obviously. Well, it's very us. creative. I, I really like that touch too. So, um, so folks, I'll, I'll tell you, we'll tell you later about uh, how to get the book, but uh, the description on Amazon is, is uh, very uh, informative. The book presents a non-confrontational study of the conflict surrounding Christian faith, scriptures, and homosexuality. And it addresses the dichotomy of love and condemnation sincerely expressed by Christians and the pain experienced by gays and lesbians. Kim, before we get some started and I ask you some questions, I'd like to put my guests and our topics in context of the purpose of our podcast and our purpose is to help current or former fundamentalists or evangelical Christians to honestly question 
and deconstruct certain aspects of their faith and find new paths that align more with history and biblical scholarship. And I think you did a really great job on this topic of doing just that, of uncovering a lot of things and make, making a, uh, 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 addressing the major issues that the LGBTQ community within Christiani Christianity has to deal with and uh, making a great case to rethink the traditional view of what the Bible says on that topic. And you also highlight the concerns people have within the evangelical church uh, while offering some ways to build bridges between the two communities. And I really like that. I also want our listeners to know that today's conversation will help not only um, if you're in the LGBTQ community yourself or have family and friends in that community, but also anyone who's had a, any kind of break with uh, evangelical or fundamentalist theology on any kinds of issues, be that uh, how to view the Bible, the doctrine of hell itself or whatever, uh, it's gonna help you as well. Um, and you know, a lot of times, whatever the issue is, we can, some people can relate to that, that statement, we love you, but you're going to hell. So, so with that context, uh, let's hear from you. Um, and what is your story and journey that led you to write this book, Kim? Well, as, as I look back on my life, um, I always question things. Um, and uh, I grew up in a, in a religious home. Uh, my father was a fundamentalist minister. He started out as a Lutheran minister, was a missionary in South America. That's where I was born and spent my first five, six years. And um, it's something that I always saw the I wouldn't have used the word conservative necessarily as I was growing up, but just questioned what was being put out there religiously and traditionally. So I came into this naturally as far as questioning uh, the views on homosexuality. Once I realized for myself that I was gay as I got older. So uh, there were things that I was questioning all along and we still did have a peaceful household <laughs> and I had siblings that you know maybe didn't agree with a lot of what I had to point out, but but we did all love each other. And my father and I particularly would kind of go head to head, toe to toe on things as I was growing up, just on all kinds of issues, which can happen uh, for, for kids, especially teenagers. And I was in a speech and debate uh, when I was in high school. And my father always thought that that's the reason that I became argumentative with him on many of these <laughs> <I see>. issues. <laughs> Blame but, it on the yeah. debate club, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So I remember reading uh, that you were, you know, you always like to look at both sides, you know, and, and you considered yourself, you can understand the conservative side, but you wanted to look at the liberal side and you considered yourself a moderate. But so... Uh, that that must have been interesting to talk with your father, who probably didn't see both sides. Is that correct? Right. He 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 had the philosophy. He didn't necessarily speak it outright, but that you, if you agree with me, you love me. <laughs> um, if you disagree, then then you you don't love me. And I used to challenge him on that um, as as I was growing up, and it's something that he did he did mellow with that, as all of us do when we get when we get older, where he was not as rigid in in his viewpoint, and it wasn't as black and white. But but he knew the Bible very well. Was very, very well-grounded and a very good man and somebody, somebody I respect and I could disagree with and, st and still respect. Right. And, and I, I like the story you told about um, 
your father, uh, you know, having that uh, sense of uh, there was only one way to look at certain things and, and, you know, maybe being a little bit argumentative. But then over the years, you said that he evolved and eventually uh, came to you later in life and had something to say about that. What, would, what, would, what did he share with you? Well, then it was over quite a few year period where, because I came out when I was in my mid thirties, and I worked my way to my father to to tell him in my in my hometown, um, you know that I, that I was a, a lesbian, and um, his initial reaction was to go toe to toe on the on what we now call call the clobber scriptures, the so six or seven scriptures, and um, which I chose not to do with him at that time, even though I was well versed. And then he went through a period of time of not talking to me uh, because, because of my being gay. And then my mother intervened. So there was a long, long stretch of time. And also I worked hard to build bridges and to continue to, you know, to be loving within the family and not to necessarily change everyone's mind or his, but to look at how, how to accept the the fact that I was gay and that we disagreed on the sin of it and we disagreed on the scriptures. So it was about a 12, 13 year process before he came near to the end of his life. He was not on his deathbed or anything, but it was the year before he passed away to where mm -hmm. then he did, he did take me aside, um, just he and I privately and then actually with tears and he apologized for being judgmental and that he still believed what he believed, still interpreted the Bible the way he did on homosexuality, but that he was choosing to leave it to God. And, and um, he, he was, was sorry for the way that he had treated me over the years, which was pretty remarkable. Yeah, that's, it is remarkable, and it must have been meaningful for you. Um, and it also is kind of an example that even though he didn't change his view, he definitely realized that he had been judgmental and that you, you can still, you know, keep that view, but um, take a different way of uh, or approach of uh, how to interact with people who disagree with you. Um, so what was the, what, what do you think, if you could put it in a nutshell, what, what was the, what led you to write this book, to write your story down? What was driving you? Well, a big part of it was, um, since I was still in the quote, the Christian realm, and even in the conservative churches at that time, was to try to build understanding around sexual orientation and build understanding around uh, the stereotypes and, and just having recognition of that, looking at the scriptures. And I know there's all kinds of other books out there about this, but to tell my story, especially as the daughter of a fundamentalist minister, and uh, I just saw a, a need. Plus, I, I will say, obviously, it was even therapeutic for me, even though I don't write this book as therapy. Um, my cornerstone for my work, and I would almost call it a type of ministry, even as a professor, what I, not what I was doing in the classroom, but just generically speaking, that um, I made the attempt to, you know, to open doors for dialogue and to talk about these things. And so I wanted to put that all in a book in layperson's terms. This is not meant to be an academic book in the least. And it's something that conservatives and all others can read and then just maybe examine their beliefs and why they believe what they do and then decide how they're gonna treat others that they disagree with, especially around homosexuality. Yeah, I think it does really bring that out. It's just bringing out, um on one side, having empathy and realizing the pain that people go through, uh, gays and lesbians uh, in their experiences. 
um, when people don't understand them um, or insist that you know they're you know sinners and going to hell or or whatever the judgment is, and then um, others uh, you know who who um, just need to uh, understand uh, what are the reasons behind uh, you know rethinking the Bible and rethinking this issue and 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 building some bridges between the two uh, the, the two two views. I think you did a really good job with that. Um, so let's kind of get into uh, some of the the uh, the Bible. Um, we we call them uh, clobber passages. There's about uh, six or seven passages in the Bible that most um, conservative Christians use to make the case that you know, homosexuality always is uh, sinful and you're out of God's will and you can't be a true Christian and all that stuff. Um, uh, what, what were the biblical reasons that you discovered to question those views and those clobber passages on homosexuality? Well, well, first of all, beyond even uh, looking at the scriptures, it was something that as I realized for myself that that I was lesbian, um, I, I also had a deep relationship with God, and I couldn't fathom that God was asking me to deny a huge part of myself. It just, it, it just didn't, it didn't add up for myself. So part of that was just even my peace that I had and my relationship with God. But then it led me to look at, at the scriptures and to try to dig a little deeper to see why the opposition and what, you know, what people had as a problem with homosexuality. And so, so I did take a look and I almost know them by heart, the scriptures you know, the Genesis 19, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, Jude, you know, Jude 1. So, I mean, those are all the scriptures. Um, and I delved through them, researched them, looked at pro and con, looked at people who were anti-homosexual, those were that who were you know, pro, quote, homosexual, to really see all sides of it and decide, decide for myself. And what it came down to, Michael, is that I, I looked at it, you know, there's seven, six, seven of these scriptures. There are 31,102 verses in the Bible. And there are seven scriptures that are devoted to, to those who are anti-homosexual or who believe it's a sin and even a sin worthy of, of hell. So, so that's one, one thing is just looking at all of this based on those few scriptures. And then the second thing is that these passages or references, you know, out of these seven scriptures, what they're referring to are exploitive forms of homoerotic sexual practices, pederasty, male prostitution, gang rape, sex with angels. And we're, we're not looking at the modern day concept of, of homosexuality and you know, um, homosexual relationships. So there was no understanding of that. And that's been superimposed um, on many of these scriptures culturally and historically. Um, and then also that Jesus did not address or condemn homosexuality. I know there's tons of debate then about what that does or does not mean, uh, but, but I'm not going to base my life on something that Jesus didn't even mention or, or condemn. And then the final issue on all of this for me with the scriptures is that there's no hierarchy of sin. That even if mm. you want to 
if you want to say, hey, it's sin, all right, if, if people around me, which I have, you know, people in my family and in my life that think it's sin, all right, so that there's no evidence of a hierarchy of sin, so I'm not going to judge you so-and-so for being this or this or having this sin in your life any more than you should judge me for what you consider sin in my life. That that whole idea of sin police or policing sin is not even in my wheelhouse. It's just something that, that I don't do. And so that's those are kind of the four main key things that came it came down to for me. And I, I do highlight that in various chapters of, of my book. Yeah, you did a good job um, weaving your story in with the, you know, the um, the scholarly um, uh, citations and et cetera about the meanings of terms, et cetera. Uh, in my own study, I found that when you study history uh, of a culture and the history of, uh, in this case, um, religion in the ancient world and among the Jew, the Jews, you uncover, and the Romans and Greeks for that matter, um, you uncover all kinds of things that we don't normally talk about when we have like a Bible study or if we just read a passage of the Bible. For example, it was very common um, to have what's called shrine prostitution in temples in, uh, in the ancient world all the way through to the Roman world. Uh, shrine prostitution is mentioned in, I think, First Kings and other parts of the Old Testament, but not in those passages. It's not talking. It doesn't mention uh, that there's something to do with uh, uh, a homosexuality per se. But when you look at the history of that phenomenon, it becomes very clear that there's something else going on when you read those passages, and it's not talking like you said. It's not talking about. Uh, mutually loving homosexual relationships uh, that we uh, have in our world today in a place where there's no such thing as shrine prostitution um, and, and basically, um, you know, cultic temples where you have <clears throat> both males and females, where you actually appeased God. You, you would appease God by having uh, sex with prostitutes in a temple and that was you know that was going on and it was fairly common in the ancient world and the other one was pederasty uh in the roman world where uh, uh men would have uh, relationships with uh younger boys and that was some kind of a uh weird uh, wacky uh mentoring or something relationship and so those are the kinds of things that uh these passages we're talking about because that was the context of the day. Right, and, exactly. Yeah. And just, just as for issues about women's rights and, and uh, you know, feminism and how we are looking to be more inclusive of women, we had to take a look at a lot of the scriptures that Paul, you know, uh, things that he said about women and where they should sit and, what, and how they should be subjective. Uh, so, so we had to take a look culturally at what was happening, you know, for the role of women. And now as well, we need to look at that for those who were or gay. And so there's, right, there's those right. that obviously what you've just brought out historically is absolutely true on how this was perceived and how it was handled in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Right. And, um, and then you also made a good point about, um, you know, 
when people say, well, it's a sin and, you know, well, how, how are they judging and measuring all the sins that there are? <laughs> and, and we'll talk right. about this right. later. Why is homosexuality spelled out and, and attacked so much, but uh, other sins like helping the poor and, you know, or, or neglect of the poor, I should say, um, and other things uh, are hardly get any attention at all. But um, really the bottom line uh, for me is that uh, if, if something is harming other people and hurting someone, other human beings, then we can say, yeah, that's sinful. But if it's something that's, you know, mutually consenting and it's not harming others and, and uh, it's um, done with love, then, you know, uh, how can you call it sin? So there's the, that whole debate as well, is, is how do you define these things? Um, one of the other things that um, I think you did a good job in is um, uh, you also, let's just also just mention uh, one of the passages is the um, Sodom and Gomorrah uh, story. Why don't you say a, a few things about that? What did you discover about that one? Well, and, and again, there's a lot of interpretation about that, um, and and some many will take, or, or at least I look at it as the inhospitality being the main issue, or that you had the angel that were there, and and you've got Lot, and then you've got those that didn't. I mean, without going into in depth into the story, but but there there were they said even all the men or groups of men from out from throughout Sodom that were there to to rape or to some say to know whether that means to be you know personally know or to rape or to be sexually involved and it was that disrespect and that inhospitality uh, that that was horrific and and if you look um, at the the offer that Lot made, and I know you're familiar with the scripture, well, hey, I'll give you my daughter. I know there's different ways that people look at that, <laughs> but but that's, again, showing the status of females that, okay, we're going to go ahead and throw, but that's not discussed much in that whole scripture as well. Um, so, so much of this was culturally based and historically, you know, back at that day, and um, there's just so many ways to to refer to it. And then when Jesus talks about it in the New Testament and even mentions Sodom, he does not speak of anything uh, with any kind of sexual innuendo to it. He speaks of inhospitality. And I bring out that scripture as well in, in my book. So so that that the use of Sodom and Gomorrah is just so simplistically used and so recognizable oh, yes. that yes. so many people the point I bring out in my book is, is, is that so many people use it without thinking beyond that, without thinking any further about right. what that means. And um, I'm asking or get asked my readers to at least be familiar with that scripture, other scriptures, and then really know why do you really believe what you believe, not just because somebody threw out Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, uh, it's, yeah, it's that's just true. Who, and, and that's why yeah. I always advocate knowing the history and the culture behind these stories to understand the context. And, and really, you, if you don't understand that, then, then you're, you're, you just come out with a completely different view. You're just making a lot of assumptions. The other thing about that is it, actually the book of Ezekiel mentions the sin of Sodom and he doesn't talk about homosexuality. He talks about neglecting the poor and, and like you said, in his and uh, not being hospitable and so forth. And so 
Um, there's just so many other things that you have to take into account when you when you try to interpret a verse like that. Um, so uh, you encourage people to, to uh, when you read her book, uh, read Kim's book, look at that. She does a great job of explaining each of these clobber passages. And uh, um, like I said, uh, there are other books that deal with these things, but you're gonna get this in a kind of a story form and it really, um, it's much more personal. One of the other things that you bring out is that, you know, in uh, today, uh, most uh, conservative Christian churches, their, their quote, supposed solution for uh, gays and lesbians in the church is for them to um, either become celibate uh, or, you know, uh, certainly to repent of their sin and and just uh, become uh, heterosexual, uh, in marry perhaps. Um, and, and in order to get there, they have to go what people call reparative therapy. In other words, some th kind of a therapy that helps them to become, like we might say, to, to pray away the gay, you know, to go through this program uh, um, they're called ex-gay ministries. What did you, what did you discover about these uh, ministries like this uh, ex-gay ministries that do uh, conversion or reparative therapy? Um, I did. I brought that out in my book. But first, before I go into the ex-gays um, ministries, the whole premise for becoming quote ex-gay is that um, you're you're not agreeing on what the cause of homosexuality is. There's a misunderstanding about sexual orientation, and there's even a denial of sexual orientation that it doesn't even really exist. That everybody, if you're going to use a term, everybody is heterosexual, and then the deviation is homosexual sexuality and there's just a, a lack of knowledge and understanding around that and that's what so much of the the ex-gay ministries are premised around is that they're they're ignoring the science they're ignoring the research they're ignoring the psychology all of that behind sexual orientation and then they're making their determination in these ex-gay ministries and that it is it's sin it's this it's that it's caused by by upbringing mother father sibling you know there's all kinds of things or that that satan has caused it or that there, there's just so many or even absurdly some have even said peer pressure disco music bad marriages <laughs> mental illness disco music <laughs> i never heard that one <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it's, I brought that out in my book, and since they're so, so they premise it on on all of these uh, these stereotypes or myths about what sexual orientation is. And then if you've got somebody coming in for reparative therapy, either if they've been coerced, which unfortunately is so many young people where their parents have brought them in for, for conversion therapy, or it's called, or reparative therapy. And the, the, the problem with that, again, is that coercion, and also that there are so many reports of those that have not change their orientation because it's it's not something that you that you can change and when we're looking at these ex-gay ministries i do chronicle those and i do give quotes from many of the leaders of those that after x number of years and damage that was done admittedly then they they do talk about 
Um, for example, John Evans of Love in Action, founder for, for Love in Action, which was the first large scale ex-gay ministry back in 73, it was founded. And he ends up saying, and I've got a quote, he said that he, that he, everyone he knew, they were holding on with white knuckles trying to be oh, something yeah. that they were not. Yeah, and, and I've got another quote by Alan Chambers, the head of the Exodus International that was closed down a couple years ago, finally, um, that he says, I repented publicly, I changed my mind. And then John Polk, who was a conversion therapy spokesman, said he was in denial and says, I, it wasn't in fact true, and it, any of it wasn't. And worse than being wrong, it was harmful to many people, caused me years of pain in my own life. And then there's quotes going on to say that several of these men were saying that they never saw anybody that changed their orientation. And so, so but go ahead if you want to ask a question. No, no, I was just going to interject that, you know, <laughs> it's just amazing because um, it's, it was kind of like an experiment you know, like, and, and gays and lesbians were the guinea pigs. It was like, okay, you know, we have this assumption that, you know, God doesn't want you to be like this and you're in sin and God can do anything. So he's going to change you. So just repent. Oh, that didn't quite work. So let's have a program. Uh, you know, then they kind of, you know, they, you know, I think Mel White actually went through shock therapy. I mean, there was all these yes. things that they, they tried, right? So then they start making these programs, Love in Action, Exodus, uh, and I think James Dobson had one too. Um, and, yeah. and uh, you know, and then you go through, I don't know how many weeks it is, but, you know, you go through a number of weeks or of this program and people are just kind of like wanting it to work. And even the people that are in it, oftentimes they really want it to work, you know, because they feel guilty and they don't you know why am i like this and i'm not supposed to and the bible says i'm you know i'm wrong i gotta i gotta change god help me and then they go through it and then it and then it's like they're in denial and then and then it's like finally it took years and years and the and the people you mentioned are the long-term uh proponents of these that were really you know i think sincere in what they wanted to do but they were honest and that finally because they were honest they had to come out and say you know what we were wrong this is not working it's ineffective right. and there's evidence abusive. that it really harms people right and it, it it is abusive and and um every story for the most part that you hear of those that come out of conversion therapy or, or reparative therapy um they it, they're ju they're just horror stories with the coercion with the guilt that's put on them and there many of them that go through this these programs they themselves are fearful of of going to hell and because that's been just right well, that's so that's the thing. It hell is this big this big uh, motivator, isn't it? It's just like this. It's a fear based faith, and and uh, if you want to get someone to do something, you just threaten them with eternal damnation. <laughs> it's like right. Um, and the thing about that is that you're hearing this from people you love, people you trust, you're, or you're yes, hearing it from that. Right. You're hearing yes. it from ministry. That's the insidious part of that is that is that these are the very people in your support system for most, especially when you're looking at young people, and um, then they're hearing this from from those that love them. And and I'm not questioning that love. It's just that 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 makes it uh, far more painful and hurtful. Right. That's a good point. 
Yeah, right. Yeah. So um, you also mentioned like some common stereotypes and myths about uh, the homosexual community. What, what are some of those? And I listed about 12 in the book, but I'm just going to go over a couple of them. And, and these stereotypes are so easy to reinforce. That's part of the point I bring out in the book um, about challenging those stereotypes. But if someone believes that it's sinful, if somebody believes that homosexuality is even demonic or it's this or it's that, um, the, the lack of understanding and uh, not thinking through some of these leads to stereotypes that actually all stereotypes, not just about homosexuality. Sexuality. And um, uh, an example of a stereotype is uh, gays and lesbians are promiscuous. And um, there, there, there's been uh, a lot of obviously debunking of that. There's absolutely no evidence that promiscuity has anything to do with sexual orientation. Morality, you know, homosexuality is not immoral any more than heterosexuality is immoral. Um, mm -hmm. It's what you do and what your belief is about this. And then a lot of what's presented in the news or gay pride parades that we're seeing, um, it was easy for people to stir up that stereotype to say, see, you know, they're out just having sex or doing this or doing that. So that that's one of the stereotypes I do talk about and try to debunk. Another is that gays recruit. It's just one I'll just use mm. as an example. Mm. And it's ironic because uh, the whole idea that watch out, you know, this gay person is going to recruit your child into homosexuality, when actually it, it's, it's um, the irony behind that is because that's technically what heterosexuals are trying to do, is they're trying to, you know, Christian conservative heterosexuals are trying to, to recruit with comparative, you know, with um, reparative therapy, they're trying to mm. recruit back into heterosexuality. So it's just interesting, the accusations that are made, but the fact is, is that you cannot tell somebody, force somebody into becoming gay or into becoming heterosexual. Your, your behaviors can change. That's the thing that people don't have an understanding about this, is that those that say that they have become heterosexual uh, you know, through reparative therapy, their behavior may have changed, but their orientation, there's no evidence that orientation changes. And so that gaze recruit is a, is just a, uh, one that's, that's put out there quite a bit and just kind of scare people, especially if they're going to recruit your children. And uh, yeah, it is a, it's a fear tactic. It's <laughs> and again, yeah. Be afraid of these people, be afraid of the, of them having an agenda to take over and so forth. Um, what kind of kind of leads into one of the big issues is gay marriage today. And, you know, there is a lot of talk about, uh, gee, you know, we shouldn't have gay marriage because it's going to ruin our society or whatever. Uh, what, what, what are the major pro-gay positions and the major anti-gay positions that you identify? When, when I wrote the book, I, I went into obviously those arguments against gay marriage that, that have been used and then the, the, the arguments for gay marriage. And obviously the Supreme Court won out as far as legalizing it in, in um, 2015. But, but the main arguments against it were tradition and the church and um, also the definition of marriage and that it should be 
between a man and a woman. Um, another argument was leaving it to the states, looking at states' rights, and there should not be any kind of federal decision or Supreme Court decision that the states should all get to decide. And um, before the Supreme Court decision, example in 2015, um, before that Supreme Court decision, 38 states had already legalized gay marriage out of, out of the 50 states. And effectively what it did with that Supreme Court decision was then basically said, you can't discriminate those other 12 states. And so it was already right. uh, more widely accepted around, around the country. But um, so that leaving to the states or that another argument against gay marriage was that Supreme Court justices should not be the ones to decide on this or that it's unconstitutional. Uh, so all of those were, were thrown out um, and all based on, on Christian, conservative Christian belief that it's sin. And, um, and again, this is marriage is a civil, it's a civil event, not necessarily religious. And so that did, shouldn't apply to the, to the laws. So that, yeah, that's, that's true. It's historically too, that, that really the church uh, wasn't really involved in, uh, uh, marriage contracts that were, it was family, you know, that had contracts with other families to get two kids together to marry and, and start a family. <laughs> and it wasn't, you know, it was like, if you look at the history of it, religion didn't really come into it until, uh, you know, er, later on, uh, when all of a sudden people start getting married in churches and so forth. Um, and then having some, a say about how it should be done and, and so forth. Um, but uh, one of the mysteries to me is, um, you know, in this debate is, you know, compared to, let's say, like you said, let's say for the sake of argument, someone thinks that uh, gay marriage is sinful or, um, you know, but I mean, compared to other sins, compared to other things in the, our world that really mess the world up, that could be sex trafficking, uh, poverty, um, you know, uh, uh, things that really harm other people, corruption, and, and on and on and on. Um, why, why is there such, uh, you know, hatred and resolve to end the gay marriage, to end gay marriage, and not other practices that are perceived as sinful? Why, why are they picking on this one issue? And that's that's an excellent question, and that that's one actually I pondered throughout the writing of my book, and that I still take a look at is that why such vehemence, why such you know um, um, animus actually you know for, from many um, ultra conservatives uh, looking at homosexuality versus other sins, and many of them who you know who are advocating gee it's a sin you're going to hell, they they feel justified by the scriptures, they feel justified by their view of sexual orientation or that it does not exist, but that it's sin that's causing homosexuality. And some of them, and this is what I try to bring out in my book, um, is that some who are so, so against homosexuality actually do have a quote, loving concern for their loved one who is gay that they may pray and lament like my father. He did pray and lament over my situation for years because he really truly worried that I would, would be going to hell. And so having that kind of um, 
strong belief about uh, about going to hell and about how you view your loved ones. Many of those conservative Christians that believe that thought that they were helping that loved one who was gay to try to save them. And um, it's an it, it it takes some grace to look at this, <laughs> um, but there's actually that that belief. And I when I recognize that from my father, I, I saw where his heart was, but obviously um, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't help his fears about that because as long as he continued to interpret scriptures that way, then he was going to have that fear. And so yeah, right. uh, for these evangelicals um, or the evangelists that, you know, have spoken out like Jerry Falwell, nuts junior but senior wanted you know some of the things that he said about homosexuality was just horrific um and a lot of the other leaders even franklin graham has said um many things that are just just um so so condemning of gays and lesbians and again it's that sense of i don't it could even be i don't want to say self yeah, self-righteousness as well but um most that think strongly against homosexuality they actually feel justified and um yeah i, I think um <clears throat> from my experience and my research one of the things that uh i discovered is that and you, you called it a double-edged sword you know it's like uh yeah these people actually do might love you and want the best for you but they're afraid they're afraid of hell they're afraid of judgment they're afraid of god that side of god that would punish people even to the point of eternal punishment uh, and so that's that's uh, a real dilemma and so um i call it the two-faced god many people call it that where you know we can read the scriptures and we can find some beautiful things uh, about love and forgiveness, and then we can find some ugly things uh, about, you know, killing your enemies and Joshua and and uh, God's um, punishment and the death death penalty for certain sins, et cetera, et cetera. And so you really have to deal with that. And I think one of the things is that uh, people who have a conservative uh, theology, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, they they have to try to harmonize the two. They have to try to harmonize this two-faced God. And this is the only thing they've come up with <laughs> is they can't really harmonize it. They can't, you know, say it makes sense. So they end up doing things. Oh, I love you, but you're going to hell uh, saying that or, you know, being so against something like gay marriage because they probably sincerely believe that it's really going to uh, ruin the country. It's just, it's gonna, you know, bring about uh, a terrible time. And then there's always the um, uh, the end times uh, beliefs that all also play into this. Oh, this is part of the end times. And, you know, we were warned that this, it would get really bad at the end. And so this must mean Jesus is coming back soon and judgment's coming and, and all this stuff. But course if you if you study history you realize that people have been saying that 
every single century for the last 2,000 years. So, <laughs> but, and, and I, I grew up hearing that. I mean, not not talking about this facetiously, but uh, my father preached the end times and that it was going to happen. You know, by by 76, I graduated in 1976, and I used to think, gee, you know, if, if the Lord's coming, I'm not mocking, but if He's coming back again, I don't get a chance at my future. And he's I know, out of the, right? Out of yeah. College, I, I you know had arguments my father about that is that how do you know well of course 76 rolled around and no um it didn't happen and then there was 1984 there was another and then 2000 with y2k that it was going to happen and then 2012 yeah. and, yeah. and not because again um you know it could happen in my lifetime and i understand you know how so many are so serious about it but they've used with that villainizing they've used homosexuality kind of throwing it in lumping it in just like you suggested there um, right right yeah yep that's that's true and and but you know what um one of the things that you bring out so well is when you look at the bible um and the history of christianity uh and our country um you know just go back to the 19th century and christians were arguing using the bible to justify slavery to justify and then later on to justify segregation you know and to justify uh you know laws against mixed marriages all these different things and so now you know and a new generation you know is is dealing with with uh the gay rights issues and you can just see that how it's just so so common for people to um <clears throat> misinterpret parts of the bible or or put put parts of the Bible way way over more importance than it, they really should be because they really sh we really should be questioning uh, whether those things are really true, especially in light of Jesus's teachings. Um, you 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 mentioned that Jesus didn't even teach about homosexuality; he doesn't even bring it up. Uh, Paul did, but he it was he was talk, uh, talking about a culture that had other homosexual uh, or shrine prostitution and idolatry and other things going on. But, um, you know, how would you, how would you now make the case that it's okay for uh, gay marriage in light of, let's say Jesus's teachings? What, what, what is the guide that you, would guide you in making that decision? Well, I mean, the old WWJD, what would Jesus do? And, and, Jesus, Jesus would absolutely have compassion. Well, and if you look even at the Pope of the Catholic Church, Pope Francis has has called for compassion, even though there's there are many Catholics that still believe that homosexuality is sin. But Jesus was all about, and I bring out different scriptures uh, in my last chapter of things that Jesus has said in general about having compassion, empathy, and um, so so why would there be any denial of two people who love each other and who are committed to each other and who want to have that commitment represented legally or in front of their their loved ones why why would jesus have any opposition to that i mean it just that just doesn't even add up makes to me no, makes it doesn't. no sense yeah yeah i i call that the um the love ethic uh, the love ethic of jesus um really resolves a lot of these questions and if you make that paramount like basically 
even Paul said that uh, love is the is the fulfillment of the law. If you love, you fulfilled the law. If you love, uh, God, there's no God. It can't be against people who love other people. If you if you're doing things in love, then it's right. And so it's it's that, that to me that's the bottom line is if if uh, whether you're heterosexual or homosexual, as long as you live a life of love and you're really trying to uh, uh, be um, kind and and uh, gracious to others and, and treat others well, then it's not sinful. It's not. It, it can't be. It's. It goes against the whole concept of uh, Jesus's love ethic. Absolutely, I, I agree hundred <laughs> percent on that. Yeah. Right. It's. Uh, yeah. So it's. 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 It's very interesting, though. The. The. The knots that people get in um, over this. Um, but I think, um, like you said, people, there are people that are very sincere about what they believe. And I understand that I was there too. Um, I used to be totally against, uh, uh, you know, anyone who would say they're gay and a Christian, you know, or lesbian and a Christian and say, oh, no, you can't, you can't be that. You have to repent and change. <laughs> so I used to be there too. I know what they're, what people are going through. So um, we have to have empathy for those people and, un and understand that they they haven't been able to t untie that knot that that's there about uh, what God is really like and and uh, whether they should accept and how they should accept certain things they read in the Bible. Um, there's a there was a very interesting case that you talk about. It's uh, the masterpiece Baker versus Colorado civil rights case in Colorado a few years ago. What, what, what was that case about and, and uh, how did it end up? Uh, that, that was about, and, and I do cover that in, in one of my chapters. And it, it was about two, two gay men that came to a cake, cake shop or a bakery in Lakewood, um, Colorado is a suburb of Denver, and they wanted to have a cake for, for their, re, their gay reunion, uh, was not, gay marriage was not legal yet at that point, um, and they were turned down by the head of the, the baker, Mr. Phillips, of the bakery, and um, then it ended up going back and forth in the courts where there was a lawsuit based on, for the Civil Rights Commission that, that filed a lawsuit on behalf of these two gentlemen gentlemen. And then there were counter lawsuits by, by the Baker, by Mr. Phillips, and then Christian groups. And that it went back and forth until it made its way to the Supreme Court on whether or not there is a legal right to deny someone's services based on their sexual orientation. And what, what Mr. Phillips, who was the owner of the cake shop, said is, I'm not discriminating against you as two gay men, um, I am opposed to gay marriage and it's, it's doing anything uh, you know, artistic wise to promote gay marriage that I'm opposed to and that's opposite of my religious beliefs. So he was trying to split hairs to say, we're not, you know, we're not discriminating against you based on your sexual orientation. It's, it's what we believe scriptures say about, about gay marriage and we'll, we'll make you, we'll give you another case. Yep. Yeah, um, but that's I what I didn't understand. He said that 
you can mm -hmm. take a pre-baked cake. I'll sell you that, but yeah, I won't make yeah. a custom. I don't. I didn't quite see the sure. difference in that. What I mean, <laughs> if I make a cake before the fact, I'll sell it to you. But don't ask me to make a cake after I find out. Yeah. And photographers have come, I mean, it's, that actually has been the fine point that many of these lawsuits have been about for florists, uh, like there's a case out in Oregon, a yeah. case in Washington with, with, and then same, same thing for photographers. Um, and it usually centered around the actual wedding ceremony or, or something about the marriage itself. And that if they're lending their artistic ability, because that's freedom of speech freedom of expression. So there were there were some some slight grounds that they could could get further on it, except it ended up being being struck down because the Supreme Court basically referred to public accommodation laws and then also the 14th Amendment for you know for due process and that you should have the right to a marriage regardless of your sexual orientation. And that also right. these public accommodations laws that came out to basically say that if you're serving the public and which this bakery was you cannot deny service based on race based on religion based on sexual orientation and the sexual orientation is where different states have hairs on that right and it makes sense so, so yeah the way i like mm -hmm. to phrase it is that if if someone had said i want you to bake a cake and put uh, the, uh, on the on uh, with letters right on the cake, Master Bake Peace mm -hmm. Bakery is is pro uh, is is for gay marriage. <laughs> well, that would be against <laughs> the person's personal belief, so that would make sense right. that he would have a right to say, "No, I'm not going to do that." But if if it's just right. you know providing a service like he claims he provides to everyone else then I, yeah, right. I, I, I don't see how they have a right. case of like, oh, well, you can't, uh, I'm not gonna serve you, but I'm gonna serve this other person because, you know, I mean, right. we, we have those so dilemma. Have that. Oh, go ahead. Sure, sure. I'm sorry, because you you could have the same the same belief that that Baker could have the same belief, let's say, about marrying uh, or doing a cake for divorced people because he's against yes, divorce. Right. I was going to bring that uh, up. Yeah. You know, right. Or, yeah, or, and so, so or a hotel owner who's who's who, you know, he does, does he care if the if the couple who's renting the the hotel room is married or not? Does he check? No one does yeah. anymore. Yeah. So why would they care about this? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, it just it gets absurd. Yeah, and and it'll probably come back up someday again to the Supreme Court. Um, it, it might whether they'll take the case again or not because they're still having to hammer this out in from the lower courts. And there's um, so so it, I I see. So you you can understand that there might be there might be situations where this makes sense, but we have to be very careful about like you said blanket discrimination against. In this case, gays and lesbians. So, um, right. we're, we're we've got another about five minutes, Kim, and I want us to I want you to kind of talk about um, a couple things. Uh, you know, one of them is how do, how do we find some common ground with people who disagree with uh, us on this issue, and um, you know, how do you get to a point where you can be like you and your father and agree to disagree and and kind of stop demonizing each other. I know this that doesn't happen overnight, but are there things to do that 
that we can do or people can do to move in that direction? Um, absolutely. And, and, and again, it's not a simple, quick, quick fix. And it also takes willingness, though, on, on all party sides, meaning that, that if you have somebody that's adamant and just absolutely says you're going to hell, you're this, you're that, um, you know, there, there, there is a point to where there may not be um, any way that, that there could be a bridge built. And you've got to, you've got to kind of decide, kind of like choosing your battles in a sense. Right. And draw, yeah. draw boundaries there, probably. Yeah. Right. Right, exactly. And deciding where you're going to put your energy and how much, especially for gays and lesbians, how much are they going to expose themselves to someone who continually wants to condemn them, you know, and and or even exclude them. And uh, so that's up to each gay and lesbian to decide how far to go from that individually, but for churches that are fairly conservative, uh, they, they still, and I offer this up in one of my chapters in my book, is that even to, to talk about it, to open it up, to put it out there for conversation so that your congregation can know why the, the church itself believes what it believes and then open it up for discussion. And, and if you really truly believe you're so right or your interpretation is so correct, then, then hey, it, it, you can open it up for argumentation and discussion. And that's, that's again, what even reading the Bible is about and being able to do. Um, and then taking, taking away the personal attacks. Um, uh, and that's for any arguing, arguing or when people disagree, they lump everybody together. Um, and that's happening now with Democrats and Republicans. Yes, <laughs> um, right. just Lumping anyone into this broad generalization or these stereotypes, which I talk about stereotypes in my in my book, is you got to get away from that. You've got to get away from, and you've got to see the individual for who they are without lumping various myths or stereotypes about homosexuals onto that person. But you've got to have a willingness to, you know, to meet halfway possibly, or to at least you know, look at, at what your own biases may be, but then, or if this other person, you know, doesn't, wants to go ahead and believe what they are about the scriptures, then okay, the step I go then, but I, I brought this out earlier, is that don't put homosexuality at the top of a sin hierarchy, mm -hmm. and also stop, stop policing sin, police your mm -hmm. own sin, and yeah. that's what I always say, is let's police our own sin, and then also my bottom line, and this is, you know, Buddhist um, as well, Christian is do no harm. And mm -hmm. so how, how that comes out that if what you're doing and advocating harms me, um, mm -hmm. you know, that, that Christ, the Christian belief is that we should treat each other well and with love. So, so those are just some, and I've got different steps to, to look at in my, in my book as well, um, that kind of reiterate some of this, but there, there are ways to do it, but the big part of it is to, you know, put your arms down, literally your arms that are in defense to do your arms, hands, arms, but also, you know, weaponry as far as verbal, put, put, it, put it down in order to be able to listen to somebody that um, disagrees with you or you disagree. Right. And then it, there has to be willingness. So have you found some, let's say, conservative churches that are willing to say, OK, well, let's let's look at this. We're confident or, you know, in our position, but we're willing to look at this again and more and more depth and maybe hear um, the other what the other side says. 
that's a great question. And you know what, Michael? Um, those are those are rare churches. Those yeah. those ultra conservative ones. And I've gone around to various churches. Most of them have been in progress, more progressive denominations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've been to a couple uh, Baptist churches, and then then what ends up happening, even though I've got thick skin, is often it and I have to draw a line, um, it becomes something that's, that um, is so, it gets so animated and it can get very, very nasty because people yeah. aren't willing. Right. You have, really have to know if they're very open. If they're not open, it's, it, it could get ugly. <laughs> but you're right. You know, if you could find, it, it, takes, it takes time. If you could, if, I think you're onto something though. Find those small things that, where you can have common ground you know, there's a verse in Romans, love does no harm to, to its neighbor. And, you know, if, if, if people are being hurt and harmed by these, some of these uh, techniques and stuff, you know, people need to understand that. They need to hear, they, they need to hear the stories. And at the same time, those who are, you know, liberal Christians, we need to um, be able to still put ourselves in the shoes of, of others and have some empathy for where they're coming from that's what they believe. That's their theology, and and at least uh, uh, bridge the topic with some love and respect uh, for where they're at, and knowing that yeah. it's not going to happen overnight. But um, yeah, I, I love uh, I love the way you approach it in the book. And um, if do you, Kim, do you have a a, a website, uh, or is your book just on Amazon? Um, it, it is on Amazon, and it's easy, It's actually quicker, easier to order it on Amazon. But I do have a page on my website to where it can be ordered from there okay. as well. What, what's What's but, your website URL for the folks? It's, it's www.interculturalsolutions.net, and then it also uh, I have services that I offer with diversity inclusion types of training, conflict resolution, um, there are various things that that could be found on my website. For okay, that. so interculturalsolutions.net. Right. Okay, right. great. And then also on Amazon, the book is uh, We Love You, But You're Going to Hell <laughs> by Dr. Kim O'Reilly. <laughs> Kim, this has been a great conversation. I'm so glad you could join us on the Spiritual Brew Pub. And uh, uh, I, I think that you uh, as people listen to this, they're going to find a lot of a lot of good things to help them navigate this issue. So thanks for coming, and uh, I'll, I'll uh, hope hopefully people will visit your website and look check out your book. And uh, you're going to do a lot of help for a lot of people. How long has the book been out, Kim? Um, it came out at the beginning of 2019, so it's been out 2019 um, for about a year. For about a year. Okay, yeah. good. All right, well, folks, check out Kim's book. Uh, her story is really is really good. And um, we'll wait until we talk next time on the Spiritual Brew Pub. Enjoy responsibly. Thank you, Michael. It was a pleasure. The Spiritual Brew Pub podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, 
a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment.